Hi, I'm David Rothkopf, the CEO of the DSR Network and host of the Deep State Radio podcast. Here at DSR, we have always believed that in a world as complex, fast-moving, and full of risks as ours, we all need access to the best minds. That is why we have created the leading network for expert podcasts on the issues of the day you care about. We go in-depth on politics, the law, national security, foreign policy, intelligence, defense, climate, and new technologies with regular and special guests that are the leading voices in their fields. We also offer daily updates on global news, our DSR Daily, and on a key story of the day through our partnership with the New Republic. That is why over a million times a month, people like you choose to spend time with our hosts and guests. Membership is what supports this, and members get special benefits, including bonus content in virtually all of our podcasts. It's a big deal, and it's a good deal. Our monthly membership price is going to go up for the first time in our history on March 1st. So now is the time you can lock in our founder's rate of just $5 a month. To do so, go to the dsrnetwork.com and click on membership. It's that easy, but don't delay. Today's rates will only be available for a few more weeks. Join us, support us. Go to the dsrnetwork.com right now. Thank you. Nine, 12, 10. 28-2-23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to the podcast. Uh, every uh, so often we do a show on a book that we think you really ought to buy and read. Uh, this is one of those shows. The book is Attack from Within, How Disinformation is Sabotaging America. It is by our friend, uh, someone we admire enormously, Barb McQuaid, who is an MSNBC legal analyst and a professor of practice at the University of Michigan Law School. She also co-hosts the Sister-in-Law podcast. Uh, how are you doing, Barb? I'm doing great, David. Thank you so much for having me on. You're very kind. And I may say you were very encouraging to me throughout the process of writing this book. So I'm thrilled to be here with you at last on publication day. Well, I've, you know, I've been following you on social media and basically the way I see you prepared for this is like going to Jewish delis across Manhattan. <laughs> Does that, is that the appropriate preparation for going on a book tour? Yeah. Well, you know, I, uh, this is my spring break. My, my family's off on a ski trip and I'm here traveling around to promote my book. So I thought I'm at least going to enjoy myself while I'm visiting all these great cities. So I've been uh, enjoying, you know, pastrami on rye and great bagels and other things while I'm in New York. Yeah, no, no, I saw a Second Avenue Deli, yeah. Essa Bagel. I know, I, I've been watching this very closely. I <laughs> uh, also have been enjoying the interviews with you about the book um, on Rachel Maddow this morning on Morning Joe. Uh, and it's a really, really important book. The reason I was encouraging is because I 
have felt for a long time that we have needed a book like this from a person uh, uh, like you because disinformation can sound abstract. It can sound like, you know, one of those things that, uh, you know, political elites talk about and, and doesn't actually touch regular people. But in the course of the past couple of years, we've seen it touch all of us in really, uh, really profound ways. Um, is that what led you to, to do it in the first place? The you know the the disinformation campaigns that were at the center of a couple of recent uh, elections. Yes, very much so. You know, my background is as a national security prosecutor. I consider myself nonpartisan. You know, I certainly have my own worldview, but uh, I, I come at this from the viewpoint of a national security prosecutor. So I worked in this space and now I teach in this space. Since 2017, I've taught a course in national security at University of Michigan Law School. And since 2018, I've been teaching a portion of Robert Mueller's report. You know, everybody gets fixated on what it says about Trump, but I find what's most interesting about his report is what it says about Russia. And it talks about how Russians use social media to influence the 2016 election. And that is certainly a threat from a hostile foreign adversary. But something I'm seeing now is disinformation being generated by people within the United States. That you know, that's hence the name, attack from within. We're seeing political operators, media organizations, people with a profit motive or a personal agenda using disinformation uh, to try to advance some political cause. And I just want to name it, identify it, and help people recognize it so that it will be yes, less useful and we will be less prone to manipulation by others. I think one of the interesting things that's happened uh, is that disinformation has become so central a tool for a major segment of our our our, our um, political universe that uh, it has been institutionalized. There have been steps taken by media organizations, the foxes of this world and others, to sort of negate the value of truth and to promote disinformation as though it were, in the words of uh, Kellyanne Conway, alternative truths. Uh, and this, is, this, this seems to me to be qualitative differently, qualitatively different from what we've seen in the past. Do you agree? Yeah. In fact, one of the things I learned about in my book is that in Putin's Russia, one of the things that he does is he's got a narrative that he feeds to people. Uh, and sometimes it, he says one thing and sometimes he says another. Consistency isn't even important. And so the idea is to destroy the whole concept of allegiance to the truth. That truth is for suckers. Truth is for people who are naive. Uh, you have to be sophisticated and know how it's really done. And what's more important than truth is membership in your tribe. Whose side are you on? Are you on the side of the red team or the blue team? Are you on the side uh, that is trying to fight the radical uh, left-wing woke agenda? And if so, then facts don't really matter. What matters is winning. And, and I think that is something that we are seeing, certainly not by everybody in the Republican Party. Those who do uh, demand truth get... Uh, purged from the party. You know, you look at Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, uh, but those in leadership, Donald Trump and others who have decided to, to enjoy 
his success. You know, Donald Trump himself refers to the January 6th uh, defendants who have been detained and are either awaiting trial or been convicted as hostages. And now we hear other people like Elise Stefanik and Marjorie Taylor Greene and others use that same phrase. And it, it means less about the facts and more about signaling your alliance with a particular group. And, and I think that that is so destructive to democracy. We need to be about ideas. We need to be about compromise and, and less aligned with who's winning and who's losing. Yeah, no, no question that, uh, you know, we, we ought to be basing it on facts. But those words, like hostages, those code words, they do offer an opportunity for people who are searching for the facts. Because when you hear them, when you hear something that you saw was a coup referred to as, you know, tourists visiting the Capitol, um, when you hear that language, it should be a red flashing light. I think one of the important things about the book is if you read it, it, it helps one make critical analysis that's important in an environment where that's increasingly difficult. Yeah, thank you. I mean, that that is my goal is to help sort of name some of these tactics to help people to identify them. So, you know, one of the tactics, for example, is take very simple narratives and then repeat, repeat, repeat them. So key phrases like hostages, Democrat Party, you know how, how people on the far right deliberately botch the name of their rival political party. It isn't because they think that's what it's called or that they they think that it, somehow that is disparaging. It is because it signals their membership in a particular uh, part of the far right. And so helping people to understand these things, I think, can help us to identify them and disrupt them. You know, Hitler in Mein Kampf revealed a number of these strategies. And one of them was to take a very simple theme and repeat it again and again, and to get other people to repeat it. So you're hearing it now from a number of different sources. And when you hear the same thing coming from lots of different channels, uh, it begins to ring true. Yeah. And then in fact, when we refer to the big lie, it's actually a reference back to Nazi propaganda strategies um, where they would they would take something outrageous and just repeat it often enough that it was accepted um, uh, by people. You're a very tolerant person. When somebody says to me, uh, we're a republic, not a democracy on Twitter, I just block them. You know, I just, because to me, that's just a clue. But one of the messages that I've heard from you as you've talked about the book, um, and I think one of the things that comes through clearly as you read the book, is that saying people who buy into the disinformation are stupid or wrong or evil is not a helpful way of addressing the problem. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, if we want to really get past this moment of polarization, we can't just yell at people on the other side and say you're wrong and try to grind them into submission. I mean, we need to be united in our efforts and we need to demand truth. Um, I, I hope my book is seen as something that is very patriotic, that calls out to the best in all of us uh, to try to unite to solve our problems. I, I think we have been through this period of you know, stoking fear and anger, and I think people are exhausted from it. Uh, you know, this is another authoritarian's trick. It's to talk about how the country is declining and everything is bad and prey on fear and conspiracy theories. Um, well, at, at some point, 
uh, people wake up and realize that those things are, aren't really true and that we need to get on with it. We need to be a system of self-governance and we need to work together to get things done. And so maybe we're at a, a moment where we can unite against it. But I think what's important is to reach across the aisle, uh, to not demand political purity and to get away from what debaters refer to as something called the either or fallacy, which is there are only two choices to any political issue. You're with us or against us. There's the red team or the blue team. There's uh, Democrats and Republicans, conservative and radical leftists. Uh, instead, you know, we're solving problems requires a lot of nuance and a lot of compromise. Look at what's going on at the border right now. You know, our immigration system is a mess. And that's because for decades, we have rather point to each other and argue with each other for political purity than actually solve the problem. And it requires compromise. We are going to have to have you know, some serious measures at the border about who gets in and who doesn't. We are going to have to have a conversation about who is on a path to citizenship. We need to look at border security. All of those things matter. And as long as we just sit there and point at the other as, you know, the evil and the enemy, we're never going to be able to solve our problems and advance uh, the goals of society and human progress. Yeah, no, there's no question about that. And, you know, in terms of the border, um, it's not just this position versus that position. There's actually a fairly substantial portion of people, um, in this case, primarily in the Republican Party, who oppose progress because they prefer to have the chaos. And that is not a new phenomenon. George um, W. Bush actually put forth the biggest uh, immigration reform package that we'd seen from anybody uh, in the past half century. And it, it ended up being killed by members of his own party who didn't want to see the problem go away. Now, there are gatekeepers in this process, and you rub elbows with them every day. That's to say the, the media, journalists. Uh, and there has been a kind of a misperception, I think, cultivated misperception perhaps, on the part of a bunch of people in the media, that their job is to present both sides as if, um, uh, they were of equal value as opposed to, you know, my kind of old fashioned perspective, which is that the job of the media is to present the truth and identify it for what it is. And that carries with it, by the way, a burden. When somebody comes on your show, uh, somebody writes an article and says, um, uh, Donald Trump is being prosecuted um, as election interference, somebody has to challenge that or it's going to work its way into the ether as something akin to a fact, if not exactly a fact. Yeah, I think this uh, idea of presenting both sides of a story worked back in a time when people acted in good faith. But I think what we have seen now is that there are those who act in bad faith, who repeat lies uh, just to... Uh, try to manipulate the public. You know, one of Donald Trump's most recent things is talking about preserving presidential immunity as if it were an existing thing. Um, presidential immunity is a radical departure from our separation of powers and the way our constitutional system works. You know, we're about to find out from the Supreme Court how they see this issue. But by calling it preserving uh, presidential immunity, he suggests that this uh, indictment uh, in the federal election interference case is somehow changing the status quo. And so I think it is incumbent upon members of the media to know that and point that out 
uh, and change it. Donald Trump has been a disruptor, a disruptor of the way our media ecosystem works. And I think for too long, people have been afraid to label lies as lies. Uh, I think um, members of the media are coming around to understanding how they have been used and manipulated in that way by relying on some of their traditional training and values. And I think that they need to do a little more homework to make sure that when there is a lie, they're calling it out. Um, yeah, although, you know, I think the other thing is people need to do a little bit more homework because a lot of people get their information these days from social media. They get it from uh, texts that are shared among their friends. Uh, they actually get it through a filter of their community, uh, which goes back to your tribe's point. If you're only, you know, relying on people who are like-minded to sort through the news and provide you with the things you read, you're more likely to end up with a distorted view in one direction or the other. Uh, so don't you feel that the problem has gotten complicated by the advent uh, of social media? Yes. I mean, who would have thought that here we are living in this age where we have more information than ever before, and somehow we all feel dumber? Uh, and I think it's because of information overload. There's so much information out there that we feel the need to rely on proxies to help us understand it and analyze it to know what to think. But I do think that citizenship brings with it responsibility to inform ourselves. Uh, you cannot govern yourself without being an informed electorate. And so I think we have a responsibility to do that. I think it's really important to read sources from all across the political spectrum to see what other people are talking about. Because if you live in your own preference bubble, you'll never have your ideas tested or challenged. I can remember a time when a um, very conservative congressman came to visit our law school and spoke to students. And uh, there were our student body is you know probably leans more progressive than others, and there were a number of questions that I think anyone could have anticipated about this congressman's view on guns that were so predictable, and yet he had no answers to them. And I think it was because he had spent all his time in his far uh, right conservative district and among you know fellow uh, far right conservative Republicans that he had just not sharpened his uh, his arguments on his issues. I mean, he, there are responses to what he was asked, but he was completely unprepared for them because he'd never heard them before. So it's so important that we hear what other people are saying and we hear what those ideas are. So I think we owe it to ourselves and to our fellow citizens to educate ourselves. I also think, David, we owe it to our children to be teaching young people and students about critical reading studies, critical media studies, and civics education so that they understand their responsibility of citizens to cast an informed vote. Yeah, I think in that respect, you know, one of the things I liked about the book, and there are many, I really believe it's required reading at this point, is that you do note that this is not an entirely new phenomenon. There has always been disinformation. Uh, it has always taken advantage of whatever the, the best available means of disseminating it is. I mean, I, you know, I think of what I, I, I still consider kind of extraordinary fact that in the really rough and tumble, nasty politics of uh, the founding of this country, uh, when Thomas Jefferson went to the State Department, he hired a journalist and he brought him on board to write a pamphlet to counter 
the, the, the stuff that was being written about him by Alexander Hamilton, who had his own journalist doing the exact same thing. Yeah, it's interesting. And the book does trace uh, the use of propaganda throughout history, you know, going back to Sun Tzu, the ancient Chinese warrior, uh, but also talking about Hitler and Mussolini and how they use propaganda. And although the, the delivery mechanism has changed, the messaging really hasn't. It's a lot of the same kinds of things that have been used over time about these ideas about repetition and the big lie and destroying truth. But what has changed, David, is the ability to spread it uh, instantaneously through social media and to reach millions of people. Uh, you know, just th that message is exponentially spread to more people than you could ever imagine, uh, you know, even a decade or so ago. Um, and that is what makes it so pervasive, I think, in today's era um, that, you know, lies, there's, you know, some phrase that the lie can uh, travel around the world while the truth is putting its boots on or whatever that is. And now with um, social media, we can see it amplified in, in an instant. The other thing about social media, I think, that makes it so pervasive is with anonymous uh, accounts and bots, you can have, um, you know, an individual look like they've posted a message that's received millions of likes and shares when it might be one guy in a hoodie somewhere in Moscow. And then AI, right? And then, you know, the prospect of disinformation in the age of artificial intelligence suggests that you can have rapidly customized disinformation that is tailored to the beliefs or aspirations or interests or neighborhood um, um, of any any reader so that it takes a different form um, and is sort of more easily digestible. You worry about the future of disinformation too in the in the context. Of the book. Yeah, I do. And I talk about this a little bit in the book about um, artificial intelligence. You know, we just had this incident in the New Hampshire primary where fake robocalls were put out sounding like the voice of Joe Biden urging voters to stay home and not cast their ballots. Imagine the kinds of mischief that could be done on election day in a swing state if they heard those kinds of messages. I worry about images that look like a prominent person saying things that they would never dare to say, uh, or you know, issues about telling people that uh, the polls are closed or you know, some disaster has struck. When a president's words can sink markets or start wars, Imagine what can be done with artificial intelligence. I think the one thing that gives me hope about artificial intelligence, though, is that there are people using it to detect disinformation. There's a researcher at the University of Michigan-Dearborn who has been working on um, artificial intelligence to detect artificial intelligence-generated videos that, you know, if he feeds them enough accurate vid videos of Joe Biden making a speech, then he can detect fake videos of Joe Biden giving a speech. So uh, I think just as technology can be a weapon, it can also be a tool that can help, can help protect us against disinformation. Yeah, well, that's that's going to be a, a, a circle that's going to keep turning as people improve it and, and, and it and it continues to evolve. Another concern that I have, which cuts, you know, close to your... Um, your day job, if, if, if you will, is that institutions within our society that are supposed to be um, fact-based um, can be twisted so that they can take things that are not true and, and, and all of a sudden 
make them true. Um, and, and of course, the courts are at the center of this. You can get a politically biased court, and it can say the Constitution says something it doesn't say, or um, it can uh, accept a rationale for something uh, that uh, is not grounded in truth or in the law. These things are supposed to be rigorous, but they're not really, are they? I mean, there's a little bit of wiggle room in there. Well, there is. And, you know, um, judicial interpretation does require that we have judges and justices who look at laws, look at facts, situations, and do their level best, as Chief Justice Roberts likes to say, to interpret the law. But it requires that judges and justices engage in judicial restraint and not use raw power just because they have it. I think mostly during the Trump era, our courts have held uh, and have stopped him. You know, we had, he had something like 61 out of 62 of his legal challenges to the 2020 election failed. The one success had something to do with a procedural affidavit that did not affect the outcome of the election. And so, uh, you know, the judiciary pitched a shutout against Donald Trump in 2020. I think the one decision in recent memory that really concerns me is the Dobbs decision that overturned Roe versus Wade. Because what I saw there, this is my view, was um, an overturning of 50 years of precedent simply because the makeup of the court had changed. Precedent should be overturned when a a number of factors are met, such as reliance, change of understanding of the facts, change of understanding of the law, inconsistency with the law. And it did not appear to me that any of those factors uh, led to a change in the law and should have led to um, an overturn of precedent. And instead, what Justice Alito wrote in his opinion was that the opinion of Roe was egregiously wrong when it was decided and egregiously wrong today. That really is just substituting his own judgment for the judgment of the justices of 1973. And that's not how it's supposed to work. We're supposed to have reliance in the law and predictability in the law. And I do worry about some judges and justices, I guess mostly it's at the Supreme Court level, who will reach for that raw power just because they can. I think all of us in government need to, uh, you say us in government, I used to be in government, everyone, all actors in government need to restrain their power. You know, there's a great book that I cite in my book called How Democracies Die by Stephen Levitsky and Daniel Ziblatt. And one of the things they talk about is the need for um, people in power to show restraint, to show um, tolerance to others, to show respect for the institutions and not engage in a power grab just because they can they need to care more about the endurance of the institution than winning on any particular issue at that moment. And I'm hopeful that those in power will see that as their responsibility uh, and not just to use power at this moment because they can. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm not going to get into a, um, a, a legal debate with a legal scholar. I'm I'm foolish, but I'm not that foolish. But I would argue that uh, the, the, the series of Supreme Court decisions on the Second Amendment or the Shelby County decision, uh, or Citizens United. I think some of these things are coming from a, a, a place that, if you give it scrutiny, uh, is founded more in the ideological bent of the members of the court than than the facts. Uh, we also see justices or judges like Eileen Cannon, who seem to want to put a thumb on the scale. Uh, which is which is you know clearly clearly an issue to be 
concerned with. As as we come to the sort of the end here, I'd like to go back to the the core premise. Uh, you do a background in national security. The book is really good on this. We're heading into 2024. It is very clear that the Russians and others want to intervene and manipulate the election. Uh, it's it's even clear that at least one of the candidates wants them to do it. What what is that going to look like? What are the you know what what's your primer for the for the voter to somehow sort through that? Yeah, I think we're already seeing some of this. You know, the messaging that Joe Biden is old, Joe Biden is feeble. I think we continue to see messaging about all of that. Um, I think that um, there will be efforts to discourage people from going to the polls, uh, whether it is through trickery. Uh, you know, the you can you can vote by texting to this number. Or uh, as they did in 2016, building followers on social media accounts um, for affinity groups. You know whether it is for African Americans. There was one called Blacktivist, Muslim Americans, you know, United Muslims of America, or on the Republican side, the Tennessee GOP, the heart of Texas, and um, you know putting things out there to either encourage or discourage people from voting. So in 2016, there was you know a vote for Hillary is a vote for Satan was one of them that went to the right wing uh, media social media outlets and then to uh, the blacktivist group. Um, Hillary Clinton has never done anything for the black vote. You shouldn't do anything for her. You should stay home on election day. I imagine we will see more of the same about that with regard to um, Muslim Americans relating to Gaza. I imagine we'll see it with African-American voters about issues that matter to them with uh, you know, police defunding and other kinds of things. So I think we need to be on alert for these kinds of things about people who don't want us to vote or are trying to get us uh, to discourage us from uh, voting for the candidate that we might prefer. Educate ourselves. You know, There's some great resources out there through the League of Women Voters and your Secretary of State office websites about the real facts about voting. Uh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely the case. And uh, another thing you can do is you can listen to Barb uh, on the Sisters in Law podcast and on MSNBC and where she writes. Um, uh, but the first thing you should do is you should go out and you should get attacked from within Barb's new book um, and and read it and share it with people. Um, I, I would go further. You can buy them their own copies. And uh, and uh, and provide the kind of basis that we all need for dealing in an environment where what is called truth is not often um, what it seems to be, uh, and that matters. And so that's why I think you know this is a great book, an extremely well written book, a very thoughtful book, but it's also a very timely book. And so I want to congratulate you, Barb on the publication of the book. Uh, I hope it does as well as it should. Uh, and I hope you'll come back soon to talk about it again. Thank you so much, David. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Barb. Uh, thanks to everybody for listening. And uh, we'll be back with more each and every day, as you know, here on the DSR Network. Until then, bye-bye. <laughs>